0: Hello, you're listening to the New York Public Library podcast, exploring great books and big ideas. My name is Aiden Flax-Clark. I work at the library helping to present discussions about culture, literature, and history to live audiences. And I'm here to share some of those conversations with you on the show. Fake news just won't get out of the news, but it's not exactly new. The traditions of hoaxes, cons of plagiarists and forgers have a special legacy in this country. You may remember that from this very show, when a couple months back we had Kurt Anderson talking about this with his book Fantasyland. Well, we've got another essential addition to that conversation with Kevin Young, the director of the library Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, a critically acclaimed poet, and the author of Bunk, The Rises of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post Facts, and Fake News. By the way, one of the better subtitles I think I've ever heard. Kevin is just about a year into his tenure at Schomburg, and he also just took over the position of poetry editor at The New Yorker this month. With all that, and a book, which was long-listed for the National Book Award, by the way, I have to imagine he's having a pretty busy, and I hope pretty great, year. There's a really fascinating profile on him in GQ if you want to learn more. And hearing him talk about the book was not only intellectually rewarding, it was highly entertaining. Kevin has a pretty excellent and dry sense of humor, and his precision with language is what you'd expect from a poet as good as he is. He spoke with Garnett Cadigan, who's a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia, and a visiting scholar at MIT's Department of Urban Studies and Planning, and a visiting scholar at the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University. Garnett's also at work on a book about walking, which is what explains all his visiting, I guess. What makes Kevin's contribution to the discussion about America's particular love of the con, which we as a country have been flirting with since at least P.T. Barnum, is the critical eye he casts on how hoaxery, humbuggery, and deception have factored into America's issues with race. And not just that, but to our very conceptions of race in and of itself. He began there, starting with Barnum himself and a brief history of the word bunk, with a short reading from his book. And we'll get to that, and his conversation with Garnet Cadigan, right after I remind you that if you haven't subscribed to this podcast yet, get in there to your podcatcher of choice and subscribe. Each week, we're going to share one of the fascinating conversations happening somewhere at the library, and throughout the year, you'll get to hear about amazing work from literally some of the most brilliant people you can think of. And if you're one of those wise souls who's already subscribed, we'd appreciate you taking a moment to leave us some stars, a review... Anything to help us know how you're enjoying the show. All right, let's get to Kevin Young, who's going to read from his book, Bunk, and then he'll speak with Garnett Cadigan.
1: Thanks for coming out. It's great to see everyone. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit uh, about the history of Bunk, not my book, but of the word. History is bunk, Henry Ford would offer From one angle, he was right, inasmuch as Barnum and others used Bunk to connect the audience to a history, usually a grand American one, that it desperately wished were true. Barnum's brilliance was to understand that wish to see America great again, yet again. But Barnum, the prince of humbug, also remained deeply connected to an assembly line of assumptions, crafting an image of the black body symbolically and literally disassembled before the audience's eyes. The term bunk was itself born of conflict and race, coined in 1820 from the floor of the 16th Congress, where a North Carolina representative continued to filibuster for the Missouri Compromise that made Missouri a slave state. Though the question had been called, he said he had to give a speech for or to Buncombe, his home county. That's where Asheville, North Carolina is. Buncombe got changed to Buncombe, B-U-N-K-U-M, then shortened to bunk, giving name to that species of fakery, unnecessary flattery, and politicking phoniness that barely believes what it says, or worse, comes to believe its bunk never stunk. For Barnum, Naming provided much of the power of a show. He knew using exotic terminology and quoting invented experts promised his audience a world they might not otherwise get to see. His early touring exhibitions and popular American museum gave audience members a sense of traveling without leaving their assumptions, of touring without being a tourist. This is one of the Hoax's chief gambits. Above all, Barnum offered reassurance, even as he let the audience glimpse freaks and curiosities beyond category. Visitors got to leave whole, entertained, while offered proof of their being higher up on the scale of humanity. It would be in the notorious exhibition he called, What Is It?, that Barnum would dress a black man in animal hides that proved a symbolic dress. just. Months after the publication of Darwin's Origin of the Species in 1860, intrigued visitors would enter to find the answer to the exhibit's question, a black man they were invited to see as a, or as the, missing link in evolution. The New York Mercury's description of the Prince of Wales' visit to the show provides one measure of the figure, quote, whose humiliating likeness to mankind has led certain muddled philosophers to insinuate that he is an idiotic Negro. Only a single glance from the bright and very intelligent eyes of the creature is necessary to disprove this absurd guess, while it adds to our bewilderment when we would trace a brute genealogy for him. It's a very convoluted diss. Um, it is an indication of how, how the century's views on race didn't free up, but only hardened the Negro gone from handmade to inhuman in a genealogy of brutishness. Now, I talk a little bit before this about Joyce Heff, who was the woman um, Barnum first became famous for exhibiting. He first became famous, I should say, exhibiting her. And he claimed that she was... Um, George Washington's nursemaid, which would have made her 161 years old, which he very much, you know, trumpeted that she was 161, um, and people would, you know, touch her and as a connection to uh, Washington. Heth could be many things—a curiosity, a machine, almost an animal—but she wasn't quite an it. I'm going to show you a couple pictures. So this is him. Uh, this is what is it more in a typical. Uh, image from the time on the right now I've seen pictures of what is it in the performer William Henry Johnson looks very much like a person in no way does he resemble his depictions in the papers of the time or in the advertisements for Barnum's American Museum hunched over as the requisite cannibal or fitting his billing as quote the monkey man an indistinct racial grotesque in an artificial jungle landscape This is true, even of the photographs by the famed Matthew Brady and others, in which Johnson's hair has been cut into tufts at the crown of his head to emphasize his head shape, suggesting he was microcephalic. Later, photographs would seem to question this, helping us understand how even the photograph that allegedly reliable document is shaped, framed, constrained. So this image on the left I talk about a little bit, which is a pamphlet from actually a little bit later, um, where what is it? became Zip. And this is what I mean about a later picture of him where he looks great. Um, he has a smile on his face. and he. Um, I want to read a little bit about him and, and then talk a little bit about the cover image, and then we'll talk some more. What is it became renamed Zip sometime in the 1870s, likely after the blackface minstrelsy character Zip Kuhn. A pamphlet called The Life of Zip, published circa 1884, whose rose-colored paper image redefines grotesque, claims he was from Australia, that lost land that similar freak show exhibits, such as the wild Australian children were claimed to be from, decide its being, quote, as correct a history of this person as it is possible. The promotion quickly abandons personhood, in describing the capture of this creature, naked and all, on all fours, this time in the bush by Barnum's agent, revolver in hand. Quote, it was here noticed that the creature was of a dark color, but the actual hue could only be determined after a thorough washing. As a pioneer of the exhibit that sideshow folks termed Pinhead, Johnson did have a lengthy and successful career, continuing well into the 20th century when he often appears more clown like. By his death in 1926, Johnson was called, quote, the Dean of Freaks enjoying what critic Robert Bogdan calls the longest successful career of any of the sideshow attractions. Uh, he, I was doing some of the math, and between when he died and when he was first shown by Barnum, which is perhaps not his first time in show business, it was 60 years he was in show business. His reported last words to his sister indicate how he is well aware of his role. Quote, well, we fooled him for a long time, didn't we? Ultimately, Zip was estimated to be viewed by over 100 million people, and his pop culture descendants can be found in popular comics such as namesake Zippy the Pinhead, and comedy routines like Saturday Night Live's Coneheads, who hail from faraway France. In 1885, photographed by Eisenman, a studio that regularly captured circus folk, depicts Old Barnum's "Zip Barnum's What Is It." alongside Ashbury Benz, the leopard boy, aged 17 years. So this is actually a um, flyer from Barnum. And you can see on the left, these are two different flyers, that his name was what is it, Um, which was one of the, I was proud to discover this, that the is was lowercase, which meant that the it was his name, sort of. What is it? Um, As opposed to what is it? Um, Small, but poets like that kind of thing. Sorry. An 1885 photograph by Eisenman, a studio that regularly captured circus folk, depicts um, him and Leopard Boy, age 17 years. The image remains especially powerful in its difference from the nondescript degradations from just a quarter century before. Johnson looks almost regal, furry suit notwithstanding, zip across his waist like a prize belt. The pair defiantly eyes the camera, boxing gloves on, as in the promotional photographs, Andy Warhol and John M- Michelle Bascat took, posed as pugilists for their groundbreaking collaboration show a century later. Ben even has Bascat's early blonde mohawk haircut, which is amazing. The image is literally reversed, zip appears backward on his belt, but if you look closely, Johnson has an image of George Washington pinned to his chest as if it were a war medal. The photograph offers a reversal of Joyce Heth's fate. Johnson literally attaching himself to the father of our nation to offer himself up as his own foundational figure. Thanks. I'll take seat. We both going to sit here or what? I'm stealing this from you. <laughs> You've
2: been hoodwinked.
1: I've been hoodwinked, <laughs> hoaxed.
2: The excerpt you read, you began with talking about bunk and history's yeah. bunk, as Ford said. But it seems that bunk needs an audience and it needs something to display. Mm. Are you asking me
1: that? I'm asking and asking to elaborate on it. Um, yeah, I mean, I really, when I started out the book, um, I don't think I'd realize how much the circus would play a part in it. You know, and that idea of showing and being shown um, but of course, that makes sense. You know that there's so much of the um, process of display involved fakery, um, especially with Barnum, who I think perfected this idea that you could tell the story, and that the story of what you're showing was just as important, if not more important, than what you showed them. So when he said, you know, okay, you're going to see the Fiji mermaid, and he advertised it, that was totally different than what you would see. When well, you'd go in. And you'd see a monkey tied to a fish's tail. Um, and you'd be like, oh, you know, I was fooled. But you also, I think, made aware that you were foolish for thinking you would see an actual mermaid. Um, and that kind of mix of expectation and then sort of chuckling at yourself or, or laughing at your presumptions, I think, was really something that Barnum was smart about. And, um, I feel like now we have a really different kind of display where we're not as smart about it. We don't necessarily, the worst thing that could happen to us is to feel foolish, you know. Um, and so there's a real resistance even to changing that story. Like the story we to, are told is one that we end up sort of repeating or, or create, which isn't to say that Barnum didn't repeat these stories and benefit, you know, when Joyce Heth died um, only after like a year of being shown by him and she probably wasn't, she was definitely had been enslaved, and probably even was bought by Barnum. You know, which is troubling enough. That um, you know, when she died, he then turned her uh, autopsy in a public forum. He he had her autopsied in a medical theater, which is bad enough. But then he charged admission and gained money and and sort of more hoaxing and more um, attention for. Saying, oh, we've discovered she wasn't, you know, 161. That was also part of his show. So this showing, you know, doesn't even, especially for black folks, you know, end at death. You know. And when I was writing the book, <clears throat> it just so happened it was during Black Lives Matter and during, you know, these shootings that also had this display quality. And I started to have dissonance, cognitive dissonance over our new kinds of display, but they seemed equally as disturbing, though they were regretfully entirely true. I love a hustler.
2: <laughs> you? Know, when you? I, yes. <laughs> when I watch a movie, I, I'm always trained for the guys in the heist movies. Like I want them to get away with it. Yeah. But it feels in this book that much as you kind of appreciate the hustler, yeah. it's pushing against the hustler that you know, at one point you talk about America, American history can be in, being told as the history of hustlers, really. Yeah. But here you're pushing and cutting, you know, and chopping on the hustler's foot. It's almost as if like you're that little man at Chihaw Station, <laughs> that Ralph Ellison story that you're there to show up to make sure people who are bluffing or lying or yeah. pretending that you're there to nudge at him and expose him and
1: go, "Hey, listen man, right here, I see what you're doing. yeah, you're called out well, I mean, uh, there was some calling out that's true <laughs> I mean I think I started loving that h- hustle too, you know, um, but after the twentieth person who displayed or cut up or or you know made off with black folks for one aspect of the hoax, you know it really got tiring entire um, sum so Um, I think when I started the book, I suspected that there was this connection to race and that race was knitted into the hoax um, in ways that I think we can talk about more. But as I went on, I became more and more clear that it was super embedded in it. And there there was uh, not only that the hoax depended on race, but that race was dependent on a hoax. Um, And so that mix of... um, understandings or misunderstandings was really something I couldn't you know just be silent about and 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 enjoy that said the other question I had was you know is American culture um is there something American about the hoax you know certainly the con artist is an American invention it's American word and bunk um, as a title, came it came pretty late, but it, it seemed to fit because it was an American word, you know, that tells, it's completely this American idea. And even the spelling going from buncombe, with a O M B E to bunkum, is like, you know, somehow fits. Kind of a hustle. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's political, too, right? Yeah. You know, that bunkum is a word that comes from politics. That seemed important, too, because there always seemed to be something political about a hoax, at least something dealing with power, and it's uh, opposite. The hoax needs a witness to be a hoax, doesn't it? I say that. Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> I think I believe that. Um, yeah, no, I think it does because a hoax is, is meant for an audience. It's meant for, you know, like a con artist can't con themselves, though. One would argue they often do, right? Um, politicians come to mind. Um, but, um, you know, uh, I, I think there's a, there's a kind of, um, there's a, you know, the movie the, the Departed, a movie I watch all the time, or just comes on all the time. Um, but there's a scene where uh, Martin Sheen says to Leonardo DiCaprio's character, like, we deal in deception here, because he's gonna be underground and undercover, and but we don't deal in self-deception, he says. Which is a fascinating kind of difference. Um, and I don't know, the hoax kind of deals in both, you know, it, it, but it requires this audience uh, that's outside itself. It requires um, someone to see it and believe it. And that's what I came to understand is I started out really being fascinated by what or how people deceived. And then I really came to understand or appreciate or try to explore why we believe these things. And and often, the things we do believe are the worst things possible about each other. Like that this person, this grown person, um, you know, who's on the cover of my book, is actually on four legs and an animal, you know, or, or not even an animal, unidentifiable. He was called a nondescript, which is like, you know, I think almost worse than being an it, you know, is this thing, you're not even describable to us or understandable. So that kind of mix is I think really at the heart of the hoax. But you need a complicit audience, you need complicit witnesses for that to happen. I mean
2: what are the ways in which as you were making your way through because you started in 18th century and you kept seeing the black body as the thing that was often displayed and the race right. not being very far from bunk and the history of bunk. But you need audiences, you need witnesses to sure. be in on the action with this. What are the ways in which you found these witnesses or complicit? You know, how did these con men manage to keep that up?
1: How did Barnum work? Yeah, I mean, I think he works the way. What I came to understand is he works the way, say, like reality TV works, um, which I love. Um, <laughs> but reality t- TV, you know, does this sort of um, strange hybrid thing where we know that it's fake, or at least like. Completely created for us, you know. They aren't really shipwrecked on an island in Survivor or shipwrecked in a mansion on The Bachelor. Um, no. No. <laughs> in theory, they could leave at any time, but they can't. You know, like um, there's this process that they've undergone. So we understand that on one level, but another level, they're, they're ex- doing these real things or things we feel are real. And I think that's very much how Barnum. That's sort of the best analogy I think we have today to how Barnum works. Now, a lot of it had to do too with the technology of the time and things like the penny papers that helped Barnum spread his message, get his crowds. Um, people argued over, you know, Joyce Heff whether she was real, like physically real, or an automaton, or made of rubber, or, you know, all these things they wanted to understand her with. But at the same time, they wanted her to have been uh, you know, a nursemaid, to have literally provided milk and comfort to George Washington. So there's that weird contradiction that audiences, especially white audiences at the time, I think wanted. But the thing that I came to understand is that the century got worse you know, in the 19th century. And that this what is it is far worse even than Joyce Heth and, and Barnum sort of, you know, he dies not too long after that. But he lived a long time, a long time for him to see race get more and more codified across the century. And you see it in the hoax, which I think went from being kind of honorific, at least Joyce Heth was like this connected figure, right, to, you know, you're just an it. Or um, by the 20th century, the stories that are being told are, are somehow even worse and sometimes more sophisticated. So not always, but
2: you spoke about Heath, and there are a bunch of other fakers that are going on with Abraham Lincoln's mm-hmm. writings, and one after that, after the other. But as you're saying, it's a huge concern: is what is authentic? What's it's authentic? Presented about authenticity, and it feels that this is not merely a history of fakery, but a history of authenticity.
1: Yeah. Um. I'm not sure I, that word is one I thought about. I think it's a history of like misinformation, you know, or disinformation, like like information purposely made to be wrong, which we have so much of right now, right? And I came to think of the, what, you know, gets called the information age is really, uh, now the beyond even sort of the disinformation age, but into what I call an age of euphemism, where things aren't what they are, what they seem or what they are said to be. And, and that kind of change, I think, was really troubling to me. Um,
2: but how much of it was trying to pass things off as authentic, or original? Over and over again. I know if they're trying to obsession. pass things
1: off as authentic, I mean, that implies they're trying to pass yeah. things off as actually what they are. I think it's often like, you know what, these people believe, if I, the faker I am, the more they believe it, you know? There's there's this kind of notion of the more outlandish the story. When you read a fake memoir afterwards it looks super uh outlandish, you know. And I think part of the problem and there's this great sort of verb of that um in the nineteenth century, this this woman named Princess Caribou who pretended to be sort of Chinese and I, I don't know, just from somewhere else in England. Um, you know, they say she outlandished herself, you know. And I love that idea because they all sort of do that. You know, James Fry or, you know, the woman, um, Margaret Seltzer, who pretended to be a gang member from South Central, um, who's a white girl. From, um, you know, not that there aren't white, well, anyway. So she, she, she isn't trying to be authentic, she's trying to be this idea of what authentic is, which is way more extreme. And you know, in that book, there are no, um, the letter C does not appear, because she claims she was a blood. That's right, it's a K. It's a K. Yeah. So she said, I do not go to school with a K. It's pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, it's so bad, that I can't. like, like start you can see you get upset, right? So, but, uh, How did, you know, the the thing that, you know, okay, she tried to do that, but it wouldn't have worked had not many, many editors and publishers and publicity folk and the New York Times who ran the feature about her believed it, you know? And I think that's the kind of uh, interesting thing, is if we just stuck to like, why'd she do this? It lets us off the hook, but the truth was, you know, publishing had kind of empowered, you know, clearly no black person had ever looked at this book because it was so fake. And this one, I had heard, like, when I first heard about it, I heard on the radio, I was like, that sounds super corny, man, like, (laughs) boys in the hood, you know, like, it just didn't sound, like, rehashed, not even good. Eve Orton meets... No. Yeah, (laughs) James Singleton. Well, I think the other thing that happened for me is, you know, a lot of times people wrote about them, and they didn't read them, the hoaxes. And so I had set out to kind of read them, hard as it was. Um, So... Like, and I realized later that there were times that I read things, that I just had foresight, and I must have been writing the book without writing it yet. So even longer than six years ago, for instance, there's a hoax called The Gay Girl in Damascus, where um, someone pretended to be a gay girl from Damascus. Um, And it was really a white dude from uh, Georgia. (laughs) And he, but he wrote, you know, he had a girlfriend online. The gay girl, you know, had a girlfriend. And, um all this kind of elaborate stuff. And somehow, um before uh, before it was well known, I like when it got exposed, I was just, you know in love with this crazy story. And so I had the foresight to like print out all the responses, because he took down a website called Les Get Real. Um, <laughs> he didn't take it down, it's still around, but he really disrupted it. And it's like 20 pages of these letters where people realize that he's been faking. And like two days later, they realize one of the founders was actually also a guy pretending to be a lesbian who was kind of flirting with the gay girl um, online. So there was this, all this kind of, you know, but it all also, you know that also had a lot to do with race. You know, it had a lot to do with this other, this idea of the other uh, and all these cases that I mentioned. Um, and so I started to understand how they were connected. And while there was this crazy almost, you know, back I was also like later after I had printed out, because all that stuff is gone from the web. You know, there's no trace of the controversy on that website. Kind of understandably, why would you necessarily keep that around? Or, um, but the web is really fugitive, I came to realize, you know. And I think we think of it as this permanent place, but it's a place where these hoaxes happen a lot. But kind of what's worse is they go away, and then they're also hard to disprove. Um, you know, they linger as like kind of PizzaGate or something, um, and we, we forget the how horrible they were, a eh, and how like outlandish they were, and then how much uh, it was required to disprove them.
2: Are there any patterns in how they reincarnate themselves?
1: Reincarnate? How, honey? Me,
2: like hoaxes that you kept bumping it in the twentieth, twentieth century, and go, oh, I knew that. That you know, I saw, you know, some, some promise of that. that, or some version <laughs> of that, you know, or that's a shadow of something that I bumped into the eighteen sixties or in the nineteen.
1: Yeah. I don't know. They, the reincarnation's reincarnation is a good word. I mean, I I more thought of them as kind of um, parts of a story, and some of the story is very American. Some of the story is very much about race. um, And I started to see those as, as unfortunately, kind of super linked. um, That this story of what eventually becomes kind of the worst of each other, like, that's what the hoaxes seem to promise or or believe in. Um, And, um, you know, that that kind of horror of the hoax just grew and grew as we went along. So I don't know if it was so much a um, retelling or or reincarnation as a kind of revisiting of this grand theme of American life, which is race and racism, and how do you extract those from each other? The hoax doesn't try to. It it just makes them one and the same, right?
2: Jump to this. I want people to get a sense of how you unfold the... Let them wash over, wash underneath your prose for a little bit. Okay. Uh, what about 96. Oh. But I'm also curious I about well. the way the hoax
1: play with our notions of innocence. Mm-hmm. Okay, bless you. Yet, while the long con, will done when done right, never need, sorry, need never have to end, the hoax is all about its discovery. Hinted at all along. Hindsight is the hoax's best light. The hoax is rather a kind of coded confession, revealing not only a deep-seated cultural wish, but also a common set of themes or feints or strategies that add up to a ritual. This is why we often are not just fooled, but made fools of by the hoax, indicted by its revelations, not of what's true, but of what we truly believe. The modern hoax, filled with hints and ironies and practically premonitions, is almost begging to be caught, perhaps because once revealed, the hoax is only getting started. Exposed, the hoaxer or plagiarist predictably resorts to a script as familiar as the long con. Let's call it the five stages of grift. (laughs) First, denial, denial, denial. Next, redirection. Then an admission of a lesser crime, the error excused away as stemming from haste or emotional turmoil or a claim of parody. Then in the face of overwhelming evidence, a full if half-hearted confession meant to redeem, though inevitably dogged by some of the same difficulties with telling the truth that got the hoaxer or politician here in the first place. What inevitably follows last in the hoax script is the publication of a new novel, or a book-length confession, or the combo platter, the reprinting of the disgraced fake memoir now with novel in small type beneath the title. Such books now end as they began with a plea. Though it often insists on innocence, often as a pervasive, inevitable state, the hoax really believes no one is innocent. This may be something the hoax shares with pornography, which regularly plays with innocence. Teachers' pets and school girl uniforms being de rigueur, only to suggest that innocence is just a guise, a sheer layer of clothing, a lusty librarian's hair, and an updo.
2: <laughs> when they get busted. Pardon? When they get busted. yeah, The hoaxes, The per- purpose of these hoaxes. Generally, how did he, I mean, you kept digging through and finding one after the other after the, yeah. after the other being called up by I some. I actually cut
1: some out, believe
2: it or not. <laughs> by some little person at Shee Station. Yeah. How did he generally expose? or
1: Well, what I think is interesting is, I, you know, people sometimes ask me, uh, you know, just when I've talked about it with them uh, casually, like, oh, you know, does the internet make it worse? Or... Um, but the truth is like journalists often find journalistic hoaxers, and the internet is where what catches internet hoaxes. Um, so there's a kind of, um, you know, it's, it, it's not just the technology, because the technology can be used any which way, which we know, but it starts to feel like the internet itself is like this weird hoax of, has been played on us all that we're you know, trying to find the bottom of, but there isn't really one. Um, that feeling might be totally true. Um, but in general, you know, I think they get caught by sort of, if not their peers, then by someone in the realm. Like, there's a lot of poetry hoaxes, or, or a, I should say poetry plagiarists. Um, and they get caught by, there's a, like, poetry detective who has sort of emerged and it's <laughs> who knew it was a job. But, you know, like, some of these people win, like, 15000 $20,000 in a prize. And they've won with a poem by, you know, Seamus Heaney. Um, It's pretty bad, you know. And so there is real world effects to it. It's not just like, oh, I'm, you know, at home believing I wrote this when I didn't. Um, People are really representing. And what I think has been disturbing, and I talk about plagiarism a little bit in the book, because, in the end of the book, because I think it's so often left out of these stories, but it seems to me that kind of theft is so indicative of another kind of theft, and you see like what people are feel comfortable stealing from and when you know the current first lady of I can barely say the the person who's the first lady, I suppose right now um, steals from the most famed beloved first lady in history, Michelle Obama, it becomes real strange, you know like why was that? you know, something that one can do uh, or feel comfortable doing. And I think it's also that that there's this idea of who can be stolen from or who is innocent and who can remain innocent despite all proof to the contrary. And that kind of thing that Baldwin talks about in uh, The Fire Next Time where he says, we cannot let people believe, you know, I can't remember how he says the beginning of the quote, like, Believe that they're innocent because he says the innocence is the crime. Yeah, and I started thinking about that a lot, you know, and, um, because I think a lot of these hoaxes, and I sort of indicate that in that what I just read, believe that, you know, or want us to believe they're innocent, A, but also that, you know, that can last forever. Um, I think about this a lot with, say, Stephen Glass, the journalist who faked a lot. Uh, he faked like over 40 stories, I think. But the most nefarious of them was a cover story for New Republic called "Taxis and the Meaning of Work," and in it he asserted this thesis that people said later had been sort of kicked around the office as a thesis that the editor wanted to prove that blacks were no longer working in taxis because they were, you know, didn't want to work, they were lazy, um, and <laughs> So that they were being replaced by immigrants, and you know, good immigrants then were um, Arab Muslim immigrants and uh, Latino immigrants. So times have changed. You know, those are now demonized groups, but then they were. So it tells you a lot about sort of how these. There's always a perfect immigrant, and often pitched against this other figure. So Stephen Glass wrote this whole cover story where he invents everything, but you know, there's black characters who are sort of lazy and. Oversexed, and then there's this champion Asian figure named Kay Bang who goes around beating up the bad guys, um, m- most of whom are black. And, you know, just like this got through <laughs> fact checkers, <laughs> copy editors, you know, like, but the point of the story was actually this innocence, you know, that was being maintained. Um, and it starts to make you really doubt. The other innocences we see all around us.
2: So they're stretching to already fit things that they already believe. It's mentioned in the book that bunk and hoaxes were very much about race. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you start thinking about plagiarism, it shifts, it becomes more complicated. It's about class. Yeah. Or actually, a little bit more complicated than you. In a parallel, it's more race and class. Explain the ways in which a hoax is very much about race or deeply invested in race and ways of caricaturing and displaying race, whereas plagiarism shifts
1: yeah. the compass a bit and starts directing itself towards class. Well, I came to realize that it wasn't an accident that, sorry, this is bumping, that race and uh, our modern sense of race and our word for hoax emerge around the same time, in the middle of the 18th century, as a kind of, um, it didn't seem an accident to me at by the end, you know? Um, these racial categories and these categories of, you know, fiction and nonfiction, which did not exist exactly, are also being developed. So, it makes sense that there was this kind of thing called the hoax, but what started to trouble me was the ways that the hoax became more and more... Uh, about horror, and so did race. It became more and more stratified. And it seemed like, rather than, what that Stephen Glass story, for instance, does, is it doesn't, um, there's no imagination in it, it's really just reaching for stereotypes. And they're the stereotypes of the day. So those stereotypes somewhat shift. You know, maybe 20 years earlier, it would have been a different group. But they all had to do with race and that storehouse of hierarchies. and you know, whenever someone was establishing race as a category, it was amazing how their own category emerged to be the best category. It's weird how that happens. Um, so, um, but it persists. That's the crazy thing I started to realize is, there was like, like a couple of years ago, there was a lot of string of kind of racial, bad science books, you know. Um, reviewed, one written by a New York Times reporter, I mean, well-reviewed. You know, these were books that had popular weight behind them, but they were very deterministic. And um, again, you know, the people who were doing them who weren't all simply white, you know, one was white and Asian, you know, they found that whites and Asians were the best uh, categories of race. Um, Imagine that. Yeah. (laughs) And so I started, you know, that sort of, that appeared in the hoax as well. And even someone like um, Margaret Seltzer, who she's trying to say that she had it really bad, you know? And so there's no other thing to reach for than South Central, you know? That was like her 80s, 90s cliche that she was reaching for. Um, And so in plagiarism, I think it has some of the same things. People are stealing, you know, in the hoax, they're plagiarizing pain, they're plagiarizing these other people's pain and making it their own, whether it's like fake Indians who are very common, um, and I wrote a whole couple chapters about. Um, to people like Rachel Dolezal, who was pretending to be black, I guess. Um, And, you know, her pretending, I think, was so tied to other misunderstandings about race, but also always about trauma. And that started to wear on me as I wrote the book. Plagiarism, on the other hand, had this idea of who you could steal from and feel good about. But both of them had this idea of, like, just because you get... You know, you say, "Okay, I was pretending." It doesn't get you out of from what you pretended. You know, if you pretended black people were horrible, but you were just pretending, you know, it's still a problem, right? <laughs> and same thing with plagiarism. It's like it doesn't get you off what you stole, or how you stole, or what you stole, who you stole from. Um, but there's a kind of in plagiarism an interesting way that people are always trying to be better than they are. Like there's a kind of class striving quality. To it that I started exploring and thinking about.
2: When I was 11, there's this girl down the road, well, up the road that I'd liked, and she liked poets. Okay. You guys are a stealing. And so I had to pass myself out as a poet. I went to the <laughs> library. I did what any non poet would do I looked for the oldest poetry book, dug through, found this obscure poem. No way I could possibly have found out. Writer two or three poems. Subscribed to Garnet Cadogan, <laughs> sent it off to her, and. You were busted was, by the she internet? She was on her way to be in love. Now I got busted by the internet, aka her mom. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it was worse.
2: <laughs> it was worse. Her mom was like the embodiment of like 600 angry comment section. <laughs> so it was way worse. And turns out that should have paid attention in class. <laughs> There's this fellow, Shakespeare, who wrote Sonic. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to plagiarize, you should at least be a little bit more original. But what bothered her mom is it wasn't so much the lie as much as the pretension of originality. Yeah. And it feels that over and over, when you keep hearing of these huge cases of plagiarism, it's not merely the fakery, but it's the claims that this is original. Yeah. It's the claims, you know, it's not merely that they're claiming some of this work as theirs, but they're claiming it as, as original, this this race to be more original than others. Yeah. And it seems that over and over you're looking at the ways in which there's this race to be original, this race to be better than others. And that's one
1: of the ways in which class is working its way through
2: right. plagiarism. Right.
1: But there's also this race that's pretending to be better than others, too. So that that kind of weird mix is 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 what the book's about. I think um, those plagiarists, are, I mean, including you, apparently, um, <laughs> are fascinating. But like, uh, you know, what the, I I kind of had to take out some of it. But there's this, there were kind of two main defenses I found in plagiarism. One is Shakespeare and the Shakespeare defenses. Shakespeare did it. You know, he stole stories. It's like, but you aren't Shakespeare. Like, you're not very good. Um, and, and, and then this... The, <laughs> well, sorry. <laughs> I'm not saying that, but... Um, and then the second is, like, T.S. Eliot. Um, people would say, you know, T.S. Eliot said steal big, or, you know, whatever he said, um, which they often misquoted and sort of pla- plagiarized wrong. <laughs> and, and And also, you know... It, a, they weren't Elliot, but that's more of the point is Elliot admitted that he did that. And that's something that people often don't do. But then the, I, I realized that there was a kind of third plagiarism, which is the plagiarism of black cultural productions, which is widespread and rampant and long-standing. And at the same time, there's this kind of reach toward, you know, well, the blues, you know, or jazz does it, or hip hop, you know, like you'd see people who've never listened to hip hop throw up hip hop as a reason for their plagiarism. Um, Hip hop didn't make you do that, you know. Um, (laughs) It didn't make you say, you know, you weren't sampling, you know, um, T.S. Eliot or or Shakespeare when you were 11, you know. so it's an interesting thing, but definitely the the class considerations to me were there. I mean, they float through other things, but definitely in plagiarism, you see this wish. It's I say at one point, plagiarism is always aspirational. You know, people are always trying to be something they're not. Um, my good friend Richard Nash, who I think I heard laughing earlier, he, he um, who the book is for, I should say. Um, he said this great quote where he said that hoaxers want to be someone else and plagiarists want someone else to be them. Um, And it seemed totally right. Um, I wrote it down. Uh, And I tried not to plagiarize it. So he gets a footnote. But it was hard, man. It was pretty good. And I think the difference is one of, you know, like wanting to be someone else as opposed to like I want Shakespeare to be me. Like I want this this other genius, you know? And they don't usually don't pick. I mean, in a way, you picked right, because you saw something. Why would you plagiarize someone terrible? <laughs> you know, so they do pick often really, really good writers or, Langston, you know, someone who is famous. So, um, and one of the cases I talk about is a guy at Harvard named Adam Wheeler. There were a lot of, uh, sadly, Harvard plagiarists. Um, <laughs> and uh, he, you know, stole, like, from professors on campus and turned them in to get a Rhodes, uh, he almost, and he I almost shot. got it. I mean, he not, the amazing the story about him is, yeah, he was up for a Rhodes, and people in the meeting were like, this is so good. He should also be up for the Marshall, though he didn't apply for it. And so they started putting him in the Marshall pool, and it just so happened that someone, like, across campus saw it and was like, what? This is the other guy across campus, Stephen Greenblatt. And they, you know, tracked him down. But he had been plagiarizing the president of Harvard for essays. You know, I mean... Uh, did he what, even
2: plagiarize acknowledgments?
1: His he plagiarized his acknowledgments, yeah. Uh, but I, That's committed. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny and ridiculous, but it's also deeply troubling uh, that there was no inner self to thank anyone. Um, and that's, I think, the... the toughest thing, right, is that um, what, you know, part of me thinks that poor guy, what was he, you know, what was he going through to do that? At the same time, I like, why was he plagiarizing the president of Harvard at Harvard for a Harvard paper? <laughs> <laughs> and then I think, you know, the reason why I come to underst- came to understand is that he wanted to reflect Harvard back at Harvard. And it worked for a long time, or for a few years. And he's unusual
2: in how many... People he pulled from, but one of the things you showed was that most plagiarists tend not to be so prof- profligate in their borrowings. No, most plagiarists are like, I'm a two-source man, I'm a three-source <laughs> woman.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. No, it's true. They find someone, and you know, um, there's a great book called Words for the Taking by Neil Bowers, and he talks about being plagiarized from, and he says many interesting things. One is people don't often remember if you were the plagiarizer or the one plagiarized from. So there's this kind of real jeopardy that even t- writing this book undergoes. But then he also finds that it's one person who's just plagiarizing him over and over again. He plagiarized a few other people, but there are very specific kinds of plagiarism and they're often about you know, very painful poems that the people wrote about their parents, you know, about his dad. you know. Why would you plagiarize someone else's memories? You know, like it almost makes sense trying to plagiarize a love poem. You know, like well, that could be anybody, but you know, I'm going to plagiarize your poem about your dad that you cried over and sweat over. Um, but uh, there's another good uh, quote from Thomas Mallon, I think, who he says, you know, when they break into your house, they don't take like things that aren't personal. They take like your wedding ring or the jewelry. You know, they make off with these personal items having just had my wallet stolen over the weekend. And you were there, we were together, so (laughs) (laughs) You know, luckily we were together later where they started going off on Target, you know, like charging, so I I didn't have to frisk you. (laughs) But we were together, you know, like it is really violating, right? And you can imagine, you worked on something, you know. Um, So the last sort of funny story I love is... That people often make up a entry or a fake thing in order to catch plagiarists. So, like an encyclopedia will make up a word, or a dictionary will make up a word, um, or make up an entry, and a dictionary will make up a word that you know if it appears wholesale in something else, they know that that was stolen. Um, and that practice is really interesting yeah. to me. Oxford equivalence, or Esquivalence, Yeah, yeah. It was the Oxford English Dictionary one. I can't remember what it means, but it basically means don't steal this. Yeah. (laughs) And people did, you know? Yeah. (laughs) People, like they don't get caught for many years because people, A, they might not read the whole thing, but also they, you know, aren't, they don't, there's a kind of trap in it that's interesting.
2: When I hear plagiarism, I just think, you're just lazy and unimaginative. And it's a lot more than that, it's aspirational, as you said, so I'm going to ask you, Read a paragraph because time is creeping on the specimen. okay. Um, three nine to seven.
1: Yeah, this is from a chapter that it had many titles. Right now, it's called Ghostbusters. <laughs> and I said, my favorite thing about that is you know there's an idea of ghost writers and, and busting them, but also that you know Ghostbusters the theme song was sued for plagiarism, and lost. You know, Ray Parker Jr. My childhood hero lost. (laughs) Okay, plagiarism is always aspirational. In a wish to have someone else take their place or supply their words, plagiarists generally steal something better than they might write themselves. In this way, though it may seem an anxiety about status or a nervousness about originality, plagiarism paradoxically displays privilege, the belief that I could have thought of it if I'd had enough time or desire. This is one reason that while the hoax regularly refers to race, plagiarism is about class. But it isn't the class warfare those few in favor of plagiarism declare, seeing it as a radical recapturing or conceptual collage. The plagiarist is no Robin Hood of words. Rather, plagiarism is the very definition of work without work. While hoaxers want to be someone else, plagiarists want someone else to be them. And there's a little one for yes. no.
2: So come with your questions. Um, your questions, no plagiarism. Um, original questions, or if you borrow some of these questions, please let us know. Uh, <laughs> step to the microphones along there and throw them at us. But before, can we just thank Kevin for this lovely book? Okay. Microphones are right there.
3: Hello, thank you this evening. Um, My question is is in part like bridging between both Toni Morrison and also James Baldwin. James Baldwin had mentioned um, we have to look at the white person, we have to look at white people for the idea of the Negro. What is going on in the mind and the culture of the person? They have to create this thing. And then Toni Morrison thinking of like the death of the imagination that creates the racial imaginary. Can you speak more to your experience, not only as a writer, but as an educator on this death of the imagination that creates these hoaxes?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Good to see you. Um, I think that for me, um, that's what the ultimate thing I came to. I mean, at first I was really upset about the death of truth. you know. Then I was really upset about sort of, the danger and jeopardy to real people and their real lives lost to the hoax, whether it was the hoax of race or the racing of the hoax or the ways that, say, Susan Smith pretended a black man, you know, killed her kids when in fact she unfortunately did. Um, And it affected black folks, you know, black men specifically who didn't resemble the mugshot but were frisked and stopped and luckily no one was Killed, but in the previous case of um, uh, what's his name? Smith, not Smith, but Michael Stewart. He, he, you know, people were, someone, Charles Stewart, sorry, was in jail. This guy was in jail. He was going to go away for the crime, you know? So that upset me, and that should be enough, and it is. But there's this other damage, I think, to the imagination, which is that by sort of saying only autobiography, and kind of its worst form, its most extreme form of, um, you know, kind of tragic memoir, like you know the worst things that possibly happened to you or we could imagine. Um, it really diminishes this idea that things that we make up can move us. You know that that the art that's all around us could be raised up and important. Um, and so the hoax sort of threatens all of that to me, it, 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 threatens not only what's real, but also what we get to make up and say, Hey, I made that up, you know? Um, now a lot of that might be true in the end, <laughs> you know, it might tell us a truth, but this idea, uh, that the hoax maintains that it's the only truth, the only way to have told the story about South central gangs is to make it up, you know, becomes really a problem, I think. Um, But it's definitely, I think those are two, you know, guiding stars in my firmament. firmament. Um, And Baldwin became more and more important, like I said, with that innocence idea, but so did Morrison and her conception of race. And I was actually at her playing in the dark lectures. I was at one of them, which was at Harvard. It was amazing to hear her talk about Edith Wharton, you know, and just uh, reveal this sort of study of the thing. I mean, this is like '89 or 1990 or something like that, and she was really powerful about it. And you know, you gotta then go home and write, improve your writing, right? Um, so that's why I hope I, I, I thought about a little bit in this book. Thank you. Thanks.
4: Hey. Uh, hey, man. So when you were, um, you had the uh, the headline up, and you said that. The capitalization tips you off yeah. that it was a proper noun. It right? Uh, you said as a poet that that that, that really uh, you dug it. Um, can you talk a little bit about how being a poet influenced uh, the topic being hoax, particularly for a poet that I think your work can be characterized as precise, buoyant, you know, and those are for me forms of truth because of clarity. You know, with, Go on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice hair.
1: <laughs> Just kidding. Y- yeah. So so uh, you're saying, like, poetry is kind of antithetical to that, or...?
4: Well, yeah, and, uh, well, I mean, not to Plato, but, you yeah. know... Um,
1: sure. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know what hat I was wearing when I became interested. Um, I definitely think in the end, though, it has this love of language in the book that has a lot to do with being a writer. Um, I I came to even like the title Bunk kind of late, but it was very much because of language, you know, and just loving the. I knew I wanted something American. Um, I think, was it in the. um, God, I can't remember, one of the debates. Joe Biden said like hooey or hokum or something like that. I was like, that's a great word, but it wasn't, I I don't remember what he said, but it wasn't as American as bunk, you know? Um, Because there seemed to be something American about it, but that also seemed to me like a poetry wish. Um, I also, some of the first hoaxes I loved, um, and still like, you know, they are a bit more enjoyable, are poetry hoaxes. And I remember telling a friend like, oh, there's poetry hoaxes. He's like, what are you talking about? Why would you hoax a poem, you know? But I think that often there are like pranks or traps for other people, but they also still have this, um, you know, effect. So there was a kind of double thing where I was interested in actual poetry hoaxes and wrote a lot about them, but they, you know, sort of have less of a starring role than they might in the book. Um, But at the same time, I I really think that that interest in language and it's being damaged by the hoax was, was very much a poet's point of view. Thanks for the question.
3: Hi, I'm not sure this is much of a question, but maybe a curiosity. I'm wondering what doing this work and this book taught you about the people who fall for hoaxes and believe these things, and what we should know about that community.
1: Um, I mean, it's sort of all of us in some way. I mean, even if we don't fall for it, It affects us. Um, I mean, I I think that this became especially true like a year ago for me, Um, and and um, you know, sort of having to write this epilogue, wrestling with what became a kind of new idea, but not a. It wasn't a new idea. Sorry, a new phrase like fake news. I started thinking a lot about you know that affects all of us because a we found out just last week more than half of the populace who's on Facebook or whatever. I don't even, can't even do the math, right? Or saw fake ads and fake this and that. That surely had some effect and we can't quite measure it. So it isn't just over there the problem. But then also that fake news becomes like a, um, just news I don't like, you know? It becomes an accusation. Um, and I think the hoax itself became like that. Um, like there's a book called the Benghazi hoax. One doesn't know what is it. What's are they talking about? Are they talking about the actual event, or are they talking about the trials that grow? You know, these things become buzzwords. I'm sorry, I'm bumping around um, a lot. And so I was really trying to wrestle with that. Uh, so I would, you know, I start to think, you know, isn't just their problem? It's our problem that we believe this at all, or that any part of us believes. Um, without knowing, and I, I think places like Schomburg are the places where you can find the truth out, right? You can find many, many sources helping you understand this. Um, and that's why I wanted all these notes in the back of the book, you know, because I, I couldn't write a... There are hoax books that have no notes, you know, and I would read them and be like, why do you... What You're quoting from a hoax book without a note? Um, that was crazy. <laughs> I mean, and I would get to the end and be like, I can't believe it, you know? And they started to seem like hoaxes themselves. And so I I guess that whole idea of what is information? What is knowledge? How do we know something is true? How do we start to think about it? I think those things start in a place like Schomburg and the archives and libraries in our communities. So the archive is a counter witness then? It's definitely a witness, the archive,
3: yeah. Okay. Hi. Uh, my name is Kevin Young. I wrote a book called bunk and, uh, <laughs> uh to... now, um, so in this, wow. in this, uh, it starts already. I, I'll give you a footnote though. Don't, yeah, yeah. don't worry. Um, uh, so first of all, thank you. This is, this is fantastic. I can't wait to read the book. And, uh, Connecting to what, a little bit what you just said, you know, about the this now, I appreciate the history that you gave. Yeah. Uh, I'm a historian myself. I really appreciate that kind of perspective. And then connecting it with a bit of what you just said about fake news and so forth. I mean, is it possible now we're in a sort of post-hoax world where even hoaxing is difficult because no one believes anything. And we've gotten into this question of like, you know, what is truth at all and all there, are there mm-hmm. alternative facts and so forth? And then even despite a mountain of evidence, there still are people who will not believe right. what is put in front of them as, now this is truth with a mountain of evidence, but they still say, no, I don't believe that. So could you just sort of comment about that? Thank you. Great question. Um,
1: I think two things. No, I don't think, sadly, we're in a post-hoax world. I mean, I I started to worry, and this was a few years ago, that we're in kind of a half-hoax world. So it's not so much that we're beyond hoaxes or after them. It's that there's a little bit of hoax in in everything. Um, And that started to become really pernicious. And um, I tried to resist that, but it seemed to be somewhat true. at the same time, I, I think that um, we've gotten the skepticism you mentioned, that we think everything is fake, you know, which sort of comes from maybe recognizing something, um, also leads you to be more hoaxable. You know, if you're completely skeptical, you in a weird way, you're the easiest. You know, like like people who say that I can't be hypnotized, and they're the first people hypnotized. <laughs> um, so if you if you're like you know, skeptics are like the magician's best tool because they quickly switch from skeptic to you know, wow, I, I don't believe it, and the, you know, like I saw a psychic thing the other day, and they're like this is the best psychic reading I've ever had. I'm a skeptic, but I'm like, wait, those things don't make sense. Um, So there's this weird way that, you know, the skeptic is still consuming the hoax, even, you know, even if as a non-believer. And you see that even with spiritualism, which I start, uh, it's early in the book, you know. And I sort of trace this idea of, you know, pseudoscience which we all sort of have seen and has gotten, I think, worse. But also this sort of 20th century idea of pseudo-spirituality, like these fake kind of spirits and spiritual beliefs. Um, so that kind of transition, I, and I'm starting to think we're in a third one that I haven't quite named yet, um, but Half hoaxes as far as I got on it. Thanks. Hey, Kevin. Good.
3: Hey. Robert Gibbons. Good to see you. Um, I lived in D.C. for about 10 years, and I believe that D.C. is like a bastion for statue worship. <laughs> and so what, is, what do you think is a reasonable solution for the statue situation that's going on?
1: You mean uh, Confederate statues? or just All the
3: statues that are hoax and lies and fakes. And uh, Oh, uh, I see. <laughs>
1: I mean, the ones I think of mostly are Confederate, but maybe there's others that I don't know. Um, I think that, I mean, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, I'm not a fan of them. Um, (laughs) Garnett has written about them really well, and interestingly, he would have almost more to say, and I think he's writing about them at length. But, you know, I think that troubling rewriting of history, that's very much the hoax's domain, right? Um, I, I say in the book that the hoax... I sort of was tracing a history of the hoax, and then it really became how hoaxes hoax history. Um, something like the Hitler Diaries. Um, it isn't just that there were these really bad forgeries that people believed, but why did they believe them? And partially is because they, they said that Hitler, you know, didn't quite know about Kristallnacht, or he, he was kind of hands-off, you know. It's just crazy to think, but that sort of is what has happened with Robert E. Lee, for instance. He was like a noble guy who just, you know, he wasn't gonna let his hometown, you know, go down without a fight. And it just becomes a part of, not history, but a misunderstanding. But I do think there is a history, there is the truth. And so trying to get to that requires us all telling the story over and over again. And I think there's people uh, doing that in, in really interesting books, some of whom have been on the stage, um, like Ibram Kendi, I think his book is really tremendous, talking about this, or uh, Carol Anderson, um, Coates' book I think is really important because it lays out some of this evidence that helps us then when we're having these discussions about whether it's monuments or the history that has been fake to lead to them can help us combat that. So I'm about getting it right. And, you know, sometimes I think, um, this happened when I was at Indiana, there was a mural that was historically important, but it had like the KKK in the classroom up there, burning the cross. Disturbing, right? If you're a, a kid or a student, a professor, anything. But that one, you know, they didn't just paint over, they, they had context, they tried to think about it. And sometimes, you know, destroying a thing isn't always the solution, because there's other things that are more, less visible than that, that are just as much a problem, right? But I do think that, you know, a statue they put up in 1950, say, 5, or 1954, to prove some other point has no historic value, in my opinion. Yeah.
2: But Another way I'd like to answer it, if I can be presumptuous enough, to the way I see this issue through the lens of Kevin's book, having read the book, is through the full length of bunk, you keep seeing these in you know, hoaxes and in you know, plagiarisms and thinking, you know, how could people believe this over and over and over again? And what Kevin does is show that it wasn't so much a failure of facts time and again and again and again and again. What it really was was a failure of imagination. You see here, the book, the book sort of brings you back to that early part of The Fire Next Time, which Kevin had mentioned earlier, and the way that it shaped the book. It's ideas about innocence. And there's this one part where Baldwin is speaking to his nephew, his namesake, and saying, listen, you know, you know people are going to protest and say, how bitter I am.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, and make all these claims to innocence. But the claims to innocence can't be taken too seriously, you know, because of all the things ahead of them. And he said, listen, if they think I'm too bitter, they can talk to your grandmother. Um, and nobody's ever accused her of being bitter. You know, and she's right there. If only they would see see her. She's been working for years, but she's invisible. And so what this book does is show how so much of what has happened in terms of hoaxes, in terms of fakeries, in terms of plagiarisms, is blind spots. What is it that's right in front of us that we're not seeing? That's only a slight shift in perspective would bring it to full view. But we've chosen not to see because of our own blind spots, our own shortcomings, our own failings. And the failing more than anything else that makes so much of these hoaxes pass and the plagiarisms is a fail of imagination. The fact that you could see somebody saying, oh, I, you know, you know, I was in Compton and grew up in the South Side and you know, I spelled everything with a K and it took our sister to writing and go, hey, that's my sister, that, that's rubbish. <laughs> and so you know, piece of the piece, of the thing that connects all these hoaxes, the explosion of the hoaxes when they're, they're exposed or the plagiarism is somewhat saying, this was a fail of imagination, yeah. and it wasn't in their blind spot that they could see that. Oh no, you you know produce a reduced, diminish, impoverish, reductionistic version.
1: But it's, it's almost yeah. yeah. like the They're emperor's different. new clothes, yeah. a little bit. So
2: yeah, and so that's you know, so suddenly you recognize that the issue with the, with the monuments are really issues and fights over imagination. Your inability to see somebody as fully human, and so it's then hard to say, "Oh, let's show them all these facts about the Civil War." It's not what they get, you know. Unaware. you have to actually show people in the way and they fail to imagine somebody as fully human, deserving of dignity.
0: All right, so that's the show. For those of you in New York, bunk is available from our NYPL branches and our Simply E app where you can find more of Kevin's books, like his most recent poetry collection, Blue Laws. And for those of you outside the five boroughs, go visit your local public library, give it some love, and look for the book there. As always, thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you're enjoying it, we'd appreciate any feedback you can leave about it in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen.